I'm very sorry for having to talk in, to speak in English, uh, but since English also is not my maternal tongue, since as some of my aggressive friends in the United States like sometimes to refer to my English as Arafat English, you know, the way Yasser Arafat mumbled to Western reporters, so I hope you will be able to follow me. First, let me really thank you, because why? Because, you know, although many Western people liberalize, uh, sorry, uh, uh, sympathize with you in the difficult years of the previous decade, uh, nonetheless, they, as I precisely written in many of my books, precisely apropos Kosovo, they liked you in, as long as you were a victim, no? The moment you no longer want to be a victim, you yourself become ethnic cleanser, potentially terrorist, fundamentalist, whatever. That's the problem with liberalism, no? They like you as a victim so that they can uh, bring you food, they worry if your children get enough medicine and so on and so on, no? That's another story, I will tell it later. Uh, <coughs> so, again, I'm glad to be here because it was easy to sympathize with you, with all of you here. Serbs, Albanians, all who are here. But uh, uh, now that you are half forgotten, no? Like, I think now it's the time and place. Now, you are, now it's the time to come here and you are the right uh, place to come. So, again, thank you for your introduction, which immediately brings us to the topic of psychoanalysis. How? You may imagine how. You know, as you said, first in English, then in your language. And of course, my fantasy immediately exploded. What you really said in that <laughs> Albanian language part, like what I... It was probably about me, but you know why I was in anxiety? Because... You know, it's the same dream as is under communism we all wanted to see, I know, I heroically resisted it, your secret police dossier, when at the end the archives were open. Of course, it was worthless that we discovered. All the truly sensitive dossiers or even part of dossiers were burned, cleansed, no? But that's a nice example of ambiguity, how even if we all dismissed the secret police dossiers as just lies of those in power, somehow I noticed, at least in my country, Slovenia, with many of my dissident, half-dissident half friends, somehow they did trust the dossiers, as if, you know, there is some truth about them written in the dossiers. They will learn some deep thing about them. So that's how I relate to that, uh, to that Albanian part of your language, no? It, it, it was... On me, the truth of me, but like, you know, my, my genome, genome, you know, like what I really am, what I never can say, I'm forever separated from it. And this separation between what I am in my stupid reality, the way I experience myself, and the truth about me, articulated in a different place, inaccessible to me, in psychoanalysis we call this symbolic castration. This gap. So, thank you for castrating experience. That's what you expect from a good friend. From a good friend, no? Okay. So, uh, 
So let me go on. I sincerely mean it. I'm glad to be here. Because you are now a place of... I wouldn't say experiment. This has a too light flavor. But of, of, a, of a situation which is in a way, although basically maybe resolved, still totally open. Economically, it's not clear what will happen. Socially, uh, uh, inter-ethnic relations, all the challenges, and so on, and so on. And uh, the problem, you should always, while being grateful to foreigners, if they really helped you and are helping you, you should also be aware of the price you are paying for this. And I don't think this obvious leftist reproach to you, oh, you betrayed your leftist soul and as the price for independence you became an American military colony or whatever. No, I mean another thing. It's much more dangerous and ambiguous. I mean how uh, Western liberals, humanitarians, bombarded you with their notion of multiculturalism, human rights, and so on and so on, which I think often displays an extremely vulgar racism and arrogance masked as its opposite, you know, as attempts to try to understand and so on and so on. Even, I claim, even when foreigners come to your country or to mine and claim we try to understand you. My God, this means they treat you, uh, basically, there is always at least an element of treating you like some primitive aborigines, no, who do some crazy dances and then you try to understand them and so on. No? I, I mean, this is how I like to shock my friends. A true multicultural tolerance today, I think, should start from the premise, no, most, most people, most other nations are stupid and boring. Why should I try to understand them? The, we will never understand each other to the end. What we need is to learn to live side by side with people who they don't understand us, we don't understand them. We just, you know, that's the true art of tolerance, to, to live side by side by people who are foreigners to us, not this eternal liberal blackmail, ooh, I want to know your fol folkloric dances, all your myths, and so on. You know, like this, the worst racist cliché from the 90s, early, of the West, to understand what goes on in Balkan, you must know the entire thousand years, at least, of history. No? No, I claim it's exactly the opposite. You must know what goes on now. And thousands of years of history were evoked to legitimize <coughs> what goes on now. For example, it's very simplified, but if you ask me for the basic element of what went on in ex-Yugoslavia already from the mid-80s, the problem for me, if you ask me, was a very brutally simple one. Starting from, I would say, maybe even early 70s, but it's more complex, at least from early 80s, the old Yugoslav communist regime faced a crisis of legitimization. In the 70s, they could have said, you know, remember, 73, Yom Kippur War, lack of, I mean, uh, uh, the problems with oil supply, so it was a general crisis. The problem is that all Europe, even the world, starts to function, enter a new era of relative welfare, while we in Yugoslavia remained even more down. So it was the problem of legitimacy. And I think this is basically what Milosevic did. He 
was the first, not the only, but the first and the one who most radically realized this scheme of providing legitimacy for the local, in this sense, I mean Serb, of the Serb Republic, communist nomenclatura, by making this devil's pact with uh, nationalist intelligentsia. As I wrote in one of the essays whom you were kind enough to include in the book, no? This is the source of what I call, in contrast to Western, so-called industrial military complex, the poetic military complex that we had here, no? When you get warriors together with poets, this is bad. So, again, this made me, in my old age, a Platonist. You know, when Plato said, let's throw out poets of the polis, you know, we learn. I mean, like, uh, you know, people, for example, people say, Karadzic, ha, 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 it's a bad poet. First, I don't think he's a bad poet. I think he's a criminal. I think he should be shot. <laughs> but I'm sorry to tell you, from my moderate knowledge, and the second point is that I always find it suspicious when people mock too much Karadzic as a poet. No, he, you remember, I quote a poem by him. Sorry, I've written by, I, I read by, by celebrated Slovene, Poems, poets, much worse poem, poems than that one. Uh, you know, that's, this brings me to one of the things that I would like to develop later. It's one of the crucial points which can uh, orient us in this ethical confusion today. The problem is not that Karadzic was a bad poet. The problem is that he wasn't a bad poet. In what sense? In the sense that what is so difficult for us to accept is that Horrible things can happen and are legitimized even by high culture. Let's go with the Karadzic logic to the end. You know, when I was reading history of SS in Germany, figures like Reinhard Heydrich, you know, who basically organized the Holocaust, fascinated me. Why? <coughs> An evil guy, if there ever was. Organized Holocaust, my God. But then, did you know that the same Heydrich in the evenings, uh, okay, evenings, metaphorically, when he was free, very often met with his other SS officers' friends, and they formed a string quartet, and they played music, which is, I'm sorry to tell you, top of the top of Western music, late Beethoven's uh, string quartets. Now, it's too easy to say, Ooh, it must be a fake. No, from what we know, it's not a fake. And in my earlier books, I developed this motive to the end. Namely, taking even more radical examples. Okay, can it be more radical than this one? Maybe it can. You know, if you read European history and ask a naive, stupid question, which is, when did things go wrong so that Hitler emerged? I think we can, it's a little bit suspicious logic, but basically we can precisely define the moment when European history took the wrong turn. And retroactively at least we can say there, the first step towards Hitler was opened. The guy who is most responsible for it is uh, Père Joseph, Father Joseph, a French priest who was kind of executive secretary of Cardinal Richelieu, the de facto leader, executive leader of France in the time of 30 years war, you know, 
1848 between Protestants and uh, Catholics. What was the genius of Père Joseph? He proposed to Richelieu and then enacted it, a simple, brutal formula. He told him, listen, forget about this Catholicism, blah, blah, or religion, it's not about that. The problem is to prevent the reunification of Germany so that France will remain the only superpower in Europe. And he succeeded. If you know history, you know what happened. In a totally opportunistic way, uh, the Catholic France made a pact with Protestant Sweden against the Catholic Austrian Empire, just to prevent the unification of Germany. And it worked. The Germany, as you all know, was late for 150 to 200 even more years in unification. This was the moment which caused, at the beginning, the so-called German delay, which is the main reason, because Germany was, as we all know, too late for colonization for the First World War, the defeat in the First World War, Second World War, Hitler. Okay, it's a little bit simple explanation, but you got the logic. So, Aldous Huxley wrote a wonderful book about this guy, Per Joseph, called Leminon's Greece, The Grey Eminence. Uh, uh, what fascinated Huxley is the following. Uh, on the one hand, as you already see from what I told you, uh, Père Joseph was a, a brutal nightmare. Like, you know, he did all possible. Ordered torturing, poisoning, just imagine it. Real politician at its most terrifying. But then he was shocked to discover something, Huxley, that, again, something even much more crazy than Heydrich playing string quartets. Do you know that this same Father Joseph, every evening, okay, metaphorically again, every evening, after the work done, wrote letters to a certain convent, nuns, who were there in France, because he was in, in, in a correspondence with them about mystical topics. And that was the shock. This same guy, about whom we know that was unimaginable, cruel, real politician, wrote the most beautiful mystical reflections. Absolutely at the level of who are the top, the top, the biggest hits, uh, St. Teresa, Joan of the Cross, you know, the big mystic. He is at that level, no way to escape it. So this is what intrigued, uh, what intrigued uh, Aldous Huxley. How, it is po how is it possible that the same person who was a monster in what he did, was in his inner life an, a breathtakingly refined mysticist. Huxley's solution was a false one. He said, uh, please feel free to answer the phone. I, I would have done the same. And do what, as I did it, in, I thanked to my good friend Alain Badiou for a one, this is how we became friends. You know what Alain Badiou did to me once? He told me somebody will call me, so I borrowed, borrowed, so I lent him a cell phone. Then I was giving, like here, a talk. In the middle of the talk, he was sitting in front, the phone rang. He not only started to talk in the middle of the, uh, 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 me giving a talk, he even asked me, could I talk a little bit less loudly so that he can... I told him immediately, 
you can do this only to someone who is a real fan. This is, you know, I mean, okay, sorry, let's go on. Uh, so, Huxley's sol solution was too easy, to avoid the problem by blaming a particular culture. Huxley's solution was, this must have something to do with what is wrong in Christianity, with its obsession with uh, Christ on the cross, this suffering, and so on. So, Huxley's solution, as maybe some of you know, from... If you are old enough, unfortunately, some of you do seem to be like me, to remember uh, hippie times uh, when Huxley was popular, not for this, but for his doors of perception and so on, books celebrating uh, drugs uh, and Eastern experience. For Huxley, the solution was the East. No? The solution was, let's go to Eastern spirituality, which is more holistic, passive, doesn't have this, how should I put it, uh, uh, potentially aggressive fixation of, on suffering and so on. I claim it brutally doesn't work. Another example here. Uh, I like these impossible, crazy examples. Uh, let's jump from Heydrich to his boss, Heinrich Himmler. Himmler had a problem, and genuinely, I don't laugh at this, ethical problem which he tried to solve. You know, he was maybe the most disgusting of all Nazi criminals, because he, much more than Eichmann, was this perfect bureaucrat, personally relatively honest, seriously bothered with ethical problems. Like in some of his letters, he asks that he was the first to admit that what Germans are doing to the Jews and to Slavs and others is horrible. No, it's terrible, killing children, even women, and so on. And he, as he put it, how can we justify this? He was the first to develop this wonderful, wonderful in a terrifying sense, formula that the true heroic greatness is to not only sacrifice yourself for a higher ethical cause, but to sacrifice your ethics itself. Like, as he put it, any idiot can sacrifice himself for his country. It took a true hero to sacrifice his soul for his country. Like, you know, he, the very, you know, how to put it, let's say you fight in a war and an order is given to you, rape those women, kill those children. Of course, most of us are, unfortunately, unfortunately for these warriors, are whatever, whatever, however evil humans are, and they are, nonetheless, most of us, unfortunately, find it a little bit difficult. I don't know how it is with you, at least I would find it. If somebody would, would tell me, rape that woman, kill the child, I would have small, nonetheless, problems. So how to come over this? The trick is, again, to change the topic, the perspective, so that this very temptation of, my God, I cannot do it, the ethical temptation is presented to you as your weakness. No, if you cannot kill, you are weak. A true hero does it. But I want to mention Himmler for another reason. He nonetheless admitted, my God, you are literally sometimes covered with blood. You gas, you poison people with poisonous gases, whatever. How can you remain human in all of this? Do you know what was Himmler's solution? Bhagavad Gita. You know that Indian epic. You know what happened in the central part of Bhagavad Gita? Uh, Arjuna, the Indian warrior king, addresses uh, 
appeals to God, asking him, my God, now I lead the army, I have to order attack, but thousands will die, families will suffer, how can I do it? And uh, the God, Krishna, I think, appears and gives to Arjuna a brief lesson in, let's call it, uh, uh, Hindu uh, militarism. No, I know, I had great debates with this, and I am not satisfied with how some of my Hindu friends try to squeeze out of this by claim, claiming, no, you must read this metaphorically, and so on and so on. No? Uh, namely, uh, the answer of Krishna is basically this quick recourse to this uh, ontology of appearances, which we also find in Buddhism. No? Like, uh, reality, substantial reality doesn't exist. What we perceive as reality is maya, the veil of false appearances, and so on. So if you arrive at spiritual enlightenment, that is to say, this Atman and so on, unity of you with the God, which is, is kind of an abyss of abstract spirituality, then you see that that's the only reality. So the logical conclusion, you can kill whatever as much as you want in this reality, literally, the God says, I can quote it to you, kill, do it, it doesn't count because nothing really is killed, just appearances and so on, and so on. Now, uh, I will go a step, which is why, incidentally, as I read in a biography of Himmler, he always carried in his pocket a Bhagavad Gita in special leather edition and so on, no, to remind him of true ethics and so on. Now, let me return to oriental, true, more authentic oriental thought, uh, Zen Buddhism. Maybe some of you, if you are old enough to remember from the hippie times what we were reading, uh, it was uh, one of the most famous popularizers of Zen Buddhism, which was very popular in, already in the uh, hippie movement, was Diti Daisetsu Suzuki, a great popularizer. But what is a little bit less known is that in the 30s and 40s he was a great propagator of Japanese attack on China and generally of Japanese militarism. And incidentally, uh, he openly admits it. That's, these are not those hippie texts, make love, not war, and peace, and holistic, na holistic relationship to women and to nature or whatever. But this is the true Suzuki, and it's wonderful to read him. Wonderful in a terrifying sense, because he not only justifies the Japanese aggression on China, claiming that basically it's this disgusting pseudo-theology of stain and picture. You know this idea of when you perceive evil, it's as like when you look at a picture and you are too close and you just see and you just see a stain. But when you pull far away enough, you see that what you thought was a stain is really just an element which contributes to the harmony of the whole. So the idea is we humans caught in our terrestrial limited reality perceive killing as a stain. But from a proper divine perspective, it contributes to global harmony, no? and so on and so on. Okay, that's the stand standard theology. You also find it in the West, in Christianity, and so on. He went a step further, uh, Suzuki. He tries to also resolve this uh, Himmler problem, no? how to kill without feeling guilty, and he goes in a terrifying way pretty far there. 
If you don't want to learn more about it, read my book, only in English, I think, till now, and it, okay, German, whatever, uh, The Puppet and the Dwarf, where I, uh, where I uh, uh, quote the stuff, namely, the first solution of Suzuki is to, he said, I know how difficult it is to kill, like, you suffer, sorry, you will be the victim here, somebody must be, like, I want, I have to, I want, I have to kill you, no? With knife. Okay, now, it's difficult, no, I do this to you, but Suzuki, it's almost like kind of a bad joke. He says, no, when I describe the situation like this, you look at me like a frightened rabbit, I kill you, and so on. He says, no, this is when I'm still caught in the false illusion of substantial reality, when I still perceive myself as a subject, agent, author of my own acts. But Suzuki says that I must, once I reach the Buddhist enlightenment, this famous called Satori in Zen Buddhism, the same scene would have been described in a totally different way. I no longer am part of reality. I am not even I. Just my mind is a passive point of, not even point, medium of observation. I am in it for nothing, where I see, just as a dance of shadows, of appearances, my sword dancing in reality, and somehow your body dances and it gets stuck on it. And I just observe it, and I'm in it for nothing, and in this way, if you look at it, it's not so difficult to kill. Then he goes on, and even, that's the nicest point, uh, says, sorry, this is not Suzuki, I will not cheat, this is another Zen Buddhist uh, the, uh, theorist from the same age, late 30s, who, I have exact references in my book, who said that... Uh, for ordinary people who don't have the time to reflect uh, on, and to meditate too much, the best path to the goal of Zen Buddhist meditation, which is the liberation from this being uh, caught into false uh, reality, is military discipline. They say, imagine a soldier who learns to suspend all reflection. A command comes, shoot, you shoot. Without even a minimum of reflection, at that point, you broke out of the, your, the, the prison of your false ego. You no longer perceive yourself as agent and so on and so on. Now, let me make it clear here, again, even in stronger terms, one should insist on what I already said apropos Karadzic. I'm not making fun of Suzuki as uh, 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 bad Zen Buddhist and so on. This would make it all too uh, uh, simple. The point is that he undoubtedly was a great, authentic Zen meditator and writer and so on and so on. But nonetheless, he could. I will approach this if there will be time later. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you, you are victim of the linear metaphysical Western notion of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, sorry. No, let's go on. These are serious things. You know, the ethical conclusion of this is a very hard one. It is that uh, inner authenticity is not what you truly are about. Inner authenticity is a lie. In the sense of, you know, one of the fashionable post, so-called post-modern deconstructionist dogmas is, it was put very nicely by Richard Rorty, 
we are stories that we are telling ourselves about ourselves. So we don't have any substantial identity. You know, the way you structure your universe, this is what you are. So from this, immediately a whole ethical program emerges, which is the main mode to fight, to fight racism would have been that we listen to each other's stories, no? Like, the idea would have been that, let's say, we come from different groups, no? And uh, uh, the way to bring peace is, why don't you tell me you're boring? I hate them because I also hate my stories about, you know, your poems, your tradition, your food, your folkloric dances, all that stuff which makes me immediately, you know what I mean? And, of course, I allow you the same to, to, to me. Uh, <coughs> this attitude was best expressed in a motto of some, I don't know, uh, multicultural movement, where they said something and they intended to be a something very deep. An enemy is someone whose story we were not ready to hear. This sounds so deep, you know, like you, again, sorry, I have problems with you today. <laughs> like, if I am not ready to listen to you, then I just fetishize you into my enemy. But I should try to understand your side of the story, no? And uh, I should, then I will see that you also, like me, you have your fears, your dreams, your anxieties, and all of a sudden I will see you are not simply an enemy, you know, but a tragic person caught in its finitude, its dreams, and so on. You no longer can, can be my enemy. My answer to this is, haha. I mean, haha, like, uh, okay, it sounds deep, but replace the general term enemy with a concrete name. Would you say that Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to hear his story and so on, no? I mean, or take, take for example, Karadzic. No, we did hear his story, no? <laughs> you know what I mean. It's even written in poems and so on. Uh, this is why, okay, it probably will not be translated into Albanian for simple reasons because it's too big. In Slovenia, it will not only, you know, this novel, which is now, in the last two years, big hit, first in France, then in Germany, England, uh, Jonathan Little, no, it's not Little, it's Little, it's a French word, uh, Le Bienveillant, the, the kindly ones, it's a clumsy translation into English. Ah, it, it got the prix, I don't know which one, Goncourt or whatever, in France. It's an incredible novel, 950 pages, a memoirs, of course, faked, written as a novel, of a mid-level Nazi executioner, the one who participated in the Holocaust. And uh, it does precisely this. It tells you his side of the story. You see an ordinary guy with his dreams, all the shit, his dreams, his whatever you want. And uh, that's the monstrosity. The monstrosity is not they were inhuman. The monstrosity is how human they remained. And the only conclusion I see from this is to abandon this topic of uh, let's understand each other and so on, no? and to admit that, you, of course we should, but in a more radical sense, namely in the sense that about ourselves, in other words, in ideological mix, narratives we are constructing to provide a meaningful framework for our experience of our lives. They are fundamentally lies. They are the screen we construct to, to 
allow us to do the horrors we are, are doing in reality without having to confront them. Like, you do horrible things, you kill, blah blah, the function of the poet is to provide the screen which makes you possible to do, to do it. Uh, so, uh, now let's go, let me go a step further. Here, I think, I watch the point. This does not mean that I am against mutual understanding, but, and many people thought I was crazy, and more and more convinced that I am right. Uh, in what? Uh, when, whenever some multiculturalist comes to you and it is, you know, racist, arrogant, oh, how interesting your culture, tell me about your stories, blah, blah, this doesn't work. This is a mutual life. Uh, usually, even, what I will do then is to tell you a story which more than my story will be something like a uh, I will try to guess what you want to see in me and that is stage for you that. Maybe you know this story, but it's a true anecdote from the history of, of anthropology, which I think is the best formula of how the West ideologically exploited us during the war in the 90s, but how did we function for them? It's a, maybe you know it, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, it's a wonderful story, about, again, I read it in some book on the history of uh, anthropology, so it's, if the book didn't lie, reality. Somewhere I think it's New Guinea, Guinea, that, uh, uh, it happened about 100, even more years ago, there was a rumor that some tribe in the middle, out of touch with civilization, that they have some terrible, horrifying dances of death. They paint themselves like that figure with dark masks and dance. So an anthropological expedition went there, finally arrived at that tribe and explained to them through some confused language sign, but somehow they got it, that they want to see this dance. No? And okay, they went to sleep. Next day, the people, the tribe members did perform exactly the dance they wanted. No? They went home, satisfied, they wrote a report, Ooh, the wild nature, primitives, blah, blah. Everything okay, except for one small detail. A couple of years later, another group, more reasonable anthropologists, visited the same tribe, really learned their language, and got the true story what happened from the other side. This so-called primitive tribe just wanted to be good, good hosts to their guests. And they somehow guessed that these idiots want to see some terrible dance. And as good hosts, they in a panic invented this dance, masks to be, you know, what they thought is the original abyss was staked for them as a sign of hospitality. Now, that's my problem, and I'm not in any way anti-Serb. If anything, now you remember the majority here. You are now you should not do to them what they were doing to you. But uh, this is the reason Emir Kusturica is not my greatest friend, to put it as the understatement of the century. Because I claim that, for example, in his underground, he is doing exactly this for the Western gays. He stages this for them. If you saw underground, what image of our Balkan do you get there? 
a crazy piece of the world outside history where people frankly eat, drink, kill and fuck all the time. A perpetual spiritual orgy. This is what the West wants to see in us. And he is delivering it to them. I, I'm against him not because he is too primitive Balkan, but because he is too westernized. He is exactly like that tribe. He is staging for the West the spectacle, what they want to see. So what is nonetheless a role, but I would have to go deeper into psychoanalytic theory, why here, but just let me give you an anecdote. Nonetheless, I'm not saying that we should be cold to each other and so on. I am tempted to say something totally crazy. Uh, I don't know how it functioned here, maybe I'm going too fast, but in my youth experience, you know how we had the formula under Tito, and I have no nostalgia for Tito, but that's another story, this bratstvo i jedinstvo, brotherhood and unity. I claim up to a point it functioned insofar as it was based in dirty jokes, racist jokes. I think racist jokes played a great, you, you can imagine how I was almost lynched in an American campus when I told it, but they played a great progressive role. In what sense? Uh, because... The way I remember from my youth, for example, when I was serving uh, the Yugoslav army, precisely because they were not racist jokes, the way I remember them from my youth, youth in the sense of uh, attacking each other. It was more a kind of a friendly sharing of obscenities. I remember, for example, I remember in the army, I met a Montenegro guy, I met a Bosnian, and uh, the story was like, I tell you a joke about my, about me, you tell me a joke about yours. You know, you know how in ex-Yugoslavia, each of us nations, ethnic groups, was identified by a certain racial cliché. And I think the correct heroic thing to do was not to say, ooh, racist cliché, but to ironically fully assume it and play with it. For example, we Slovenes were and are, it always surprises me, you know, so politically incorrect observation, to what extent clichés are usually true. <laughs> That's another story, no? <laughs> we Slovenes are supposed to be misers, you know, people who don't like to spend money. So you know what's the... Yeah, it's true, yeah, you know, of course it's true. <laughs> and I used it when I was in the Yugoslav army, you know what I did? Once only I invited my fellow soldiers to beer and bought them beer. And because they perceived me as a Slovene, I became a legend. A Slovene who is not a miser. It was the best investment I did. For the whole year, oh, he's a good Slovene, they were inviting me and so on. Our standard joke is what? Uh, and we are really like that. You know, a fairy, fairy, you know, the stupid magic entity who fills your wishes, comes to a Slovene farmer and asks him, I will do whatever you want to you, just remember. I will do to your neighbor twice as much, no? You know what is Slovene farmer's answer? Take one of my eyes. <laughs> because then, and this is the basic Slovene principle. If I get a little bit but the neighbor gets more, no, it's better if I lose a little bit just that the neighbor loses more. Uh, so, uh, okay, these are we Slovenes, no? Then the Montenegro friend, I remember, immediately jumped in and said, you know, Montenegro, they have earthquakes and they are, their cliché is lazy, no? You can imagine what was his story. You know, how does a Montenegro guy masturbate, no? He digs a hole in the earth, 
puts the penis in and waits for the earthquake. No? <laughs> He's too late. But you see how it works even now. I claim this, now we are enacting the true brotherhood and unity. This is how it worked. And now I come to the climactic point. The best experience of this at its clinical purest, I report about it in one of my early books, so I'm sure you don't know it, which is not translated, is was uh, with an Albanian friend of mine, soldier in Yugoslav army. Namely, we were almost friends, becoming friends, but then something was missing. We were still this official cold friends, respect, no? And then the guy made the first move. Okay, I don't know if this is a racist cliche, no? I love basic, but I was told that with you, you can joke about everything, but not about your mother and sister. That it's not good to tell you, I will fuck your mother or what, no? Uh, uh, okay, so he, uh, he approached me one morning, and I was very shocked, because he was an intellectual. And he told me, uh, I fuck your mother. And I noticed what was the message. The message was, let's become truly friends. And I accepted the logic. It, be, believe me, I never had problems with replying dirty to dirty. You know how, what was my immediate answer? Go ahead after I finish with your sister. No. No? Okay. So, you know what then happened? Now comes the ethical miracle. Uh, then we embraced, we became friends, and it's not what you think now. Then we were spending hours telling dirty stories or what. No, we were both intellectuals. He was more than me. We were very cold. Just to remind ourselves that we are really friends, a wonderful small ritual developed. Every morning that we met, instead of saying hello, good morning, we just, we didn't even say the whole story. He told me, mother, I told him, sister. You know, it was just a reminder, we are still friends. So don't, you know, I was always fascinated about this ambiguity of obscenity. On the other, yes, to go so that you will see that I'm nonetheless a good feminist boy, no? I'm not saying these jokes solve everything, because, I mean, my God, the first feminist reaction, and this should be a test for you. If you pretend to be a feminist, ask yourself, did you immediately feel what is wrong with this joke? That it's nonetheless, it's the typical male pact about the exchange of women. No? No. Yeah, it's not. Okay, but then I would like to have the opposite. Here I'm a feminist. I would like to see two women say, Fuck your father after I finish with your husband. You know, that would be feminism for me. <laughs> then you are a good feminist, okay? Okay, sorry. Okay, no, sorry, let me go on. So that, uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, how, should, uh, uh, how should I put it? This is unfortunately one side of the story. Think, ah, uh, yeah, another problem here is the problem of hierarchy. Of course, unfortunately, no. Hierarchy in the sense that this also worked because both of us were uh, the same level ordinary soldiers. Like, it wouldn't work, I think at least, maybe I'm wrong, as well if I were to approach my battalion commander major and tell him, fuck your mother. No, I get it. It wouldn't be so good, how should I put it, no? So, first, there is the problem of hierarchy. The second... Uh, 
and yeah, that's the, the other problem. The second problem is that, now I'm not saying, you know, things are much more refined here. I'm not telling you, oh, so let's start telling dirty jokes about each other, no? Although I don't see anything bad. I remember when I, ten years ago, when the war was finishing, but when I was telling in the United States this story, a woman from Sarajevo who escaped from there attacked me like, what are you saying this? We are in a tragic situation and you are just telling us we should just across the lines, I mean front lines, uh, tell each other dirty jokes. But then I told her, sorry, but what's so bad about it? If you, if you do this instead of shooting at each other, uh, what's bad about it? How should I put it, no? I mean, I don't underestimate this, this ironic populist low humor. The problem is somewhere else. I don't know how it is with you, because in each culture this works in a specific way, but it is, uh, I claim, a general feature of cultures. What fascinates me more and more in, as an ideological phenomenon, and I re return to this in all my books, it's how when you look at a culture, or how a certain community is held together, and it can be large community, it can be even a university department, small one, you can see that you have, ex for example, you have explicit rules which define how this community functions. But this is never all. You have explicit rules, but then you have, how should I call them, meta rules, higher level rules which tell you how to relate to these elementary rules. Let me put it in this way. You want to become a member of a certain upper class community, group. It can be you want to be integrated. For example, the most brutal disappointment will be for you if you try to become, if you get scholarship part of some snobbish Oxford, British or American, Harvard, whatever community. You try to learn their rules. You follow them, then you discover they laugh at you. Why? Because you know, true identity, true belonging to a community is not only rules, but it's meta, to learn meta rules which tell you how and when to violate the explicit rules. It's through this violation that you really become a member. You must learn how to violate the rules. For example, in, you have British patriotism, and you learn this from all those British novels about uh, Oxford uh, secrets and so on, but this is not enough. You have to learn how to make fun of your patriotism. It is only through this gentle undermining that you are really one of them. If you just follow the rules, uh, you are an idiot. And now I come to the more obscene aspect. We should never underestimate to what extent what may appear to us as subverting, undermining a community is really the deepest part, aspect of the identity, as it were, of this, uh, of this uh, community. Here we enter the other, much more ominous level of obscenity. This is what fascinated me so much in the ex, I hated it, Yugoslav army. Why? Privately, I admit it. As a private person, I'm a kind of a neo-fascist. I like order 
discipline in all, at all levels, even in love life. Like my favorite uh, uh, saying by Lacan is, my fiancé is never late for an appointment. Because the moment she is late, she is no longer my fiancé. You know, like, there must be order. So I went with great hopes into Yugoslav army because I thought at least there will be order. Well, if some of you are old enough to serve it, you knew it, beneath the surface of order it was one big chaos of obscenities, obscene jokes, whatever. And it took me a long time. Now, I will tell you another thing which I only mention once in my English book, which is the worst selling, so I'm sure you don't know it, but I love it. Uh, uh, the story of a doctor's exam. You know the story which I witnessed? Uh, it's the best story. I can, because, yeah, yeah, because there you have ideology at its purest. It is at that point that almost, as in a kind of a, a, a epiphany, I understood what is power. It happened in Karlovac, you know, Croatia, close to the Slovene border. I was there... Well, we had this. We didn't have there a proper, how do you call it? We didn't have a proper doctor's office. We just had a student who was a medical student, so he was there if some of us got slightly wounded. He slept in a room which, to which, and you will see why this is important. In that room there was a wash basin for wash, and above on the mirror there were stacked this, you know, from pre-pornographic times, this photos of girls just half naked, not even really pornography, you will see why this is important. Okay. So once a week a doctor came from military hospital and we had a collective examination. We were there waiting in line and each of us had to stand up and in front of others and say what is wrong. Okay. I was there quite by chance, then something very mystical happened. One guy stood up and said uh, as you say in the vulgar Serbo-Croat, uh, uh, that he has uh, 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 pains in his penis, no? But he said in Serbo-Croat, boli me kurac, which you know means something slightly different, like fuck off, no, and so on. This already started laughter. But then the doctor asked him, what do you say? And he said, no, 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 it's quite serious. So the doctor told him, okay, undress yourself. He did it and he said, the problem is I have great pains with my skin around the head, I cannot pull it down. Then the doctor said, okay, show it to me, pull it down. <laughs> then it doesn't hurt, you can do it. Then the, the soldier said, no, it's only when I am uh, I have an erection. Then, now comes, the, yeah, yeah, it's even worse than you think. Then, <laughs> then, then uh, uh, the doctor told him, okay, Durkai, Durkai, jerk off, do it. And then something absolutely obscene happened. The guy masturbated, tried to get an erection. Of course, it didn't work. Then the doctor went to that uh, mirror, took the photos, and showed them to her, look, gledaj, kakva pička, like, look at this, look what, drkaj, drkaj, look at it, what man are you? And then I got it. At the same time, the doctor was looking at us, and started to laugh, it was the most oppressive, obscene solidarity. But this is not the same as the joke with my Albanian colleague. I claim this is totally, this is how power functions. There was no subversing, undermining of power here. For power, in order to function, this, is for, this was for me the, the basic lesson of the army life. You need, and this is why, 
For example, in the United States Army, they have all the time these scandals, you know, they discover, they call it fragging or whatever, you know, these rituals of soldiers torturing. You, for the army collective, you need this obscene underside, you need it to function. So, again, the point is how to manage with all of it. Sorry? Fifteen more, yes, because, uh, of course... I promise you, if you want to publish it anywhere, to give you the text, because it looks very bad now. It looks bad in the sense that, that I will begin it when I will end it. It will be that I will be at the beginning. No. Okay. So what I wanted to tell you after all this... Okay, let me do it a little bit more systematically. Uh, uh, so we have three elements, as it were. Two are oppressed with political correctness. We have, on the one hand, this simple, cold distance dignity, which I like. We can undermine it through shared emancipatory obscenity, which is good. What, but all this, what is the problem for me with today's liberal ideology? It is that uh, it Okay, I will try to develop it a little bit with another improvisation. Did you notice how more and more, and I repeat this often in my books, more and more today we have uh, products deprived of their substance. You know, like you have, my God, I usually drink it, Coke but without caffeine or without sugar. We uh, We have, I don't know, a cake without sugar, you have beer without alcohol, coffee, like as if you get the product but deprived of its poisonous substance. I claim that this is what is basically false with liberal multiculturalism. In all their praising the neighbor, the other, it's a decaffeinated other. How should I put it? No? They, they appear to be open to you but they terribly censor you. I noticed this in the United States when I witnessed some conversations of uh, ooh, liberal multiculturalists with uh, American Indians. Even the name is prohibited now. You are forced to call them Native Americans. And I had a good friend among them who is furious about it, who, who told me, now these liberals even don't allow us, tell us how we should name ourselves. And he gave me a wonderful argument for Indians. He told me, Native American sounds like we are part of nature, you know, like only you are culture, we are nature. Well, he said, to be called an Indian is at least a monument to white men's stupidity, no? Because, you know, uh, uh, Colombo, they thought they are in India, no? At least not much better. But what I'm saying is that how, if you listen to this politically correct description, all the dark aspects, drinking, despair, disappears and... American Indians appear to be some kind of, a, you know, holistic, uh, spiritualized guys who told us how against Western technological imperialism we should have a holistic relationship with Mother Nature and so on, all that, all that stuff. So, uh, erase that, that. So the problem of tolerance is uh, something which I think it's a crucial phenomenon which tells us a lot in today's ideology. It is uh, status. It's, I noticed how in the United States more and more now one topic predominates uh, in social sciences. It's getting popular. I know of more than 20 books dealing with it. The topic of toxic subjects. They're obsessed with the idea that your neighbor, people can be toxic in somehow. 
toxic, excessive harassment. And it's interesting how this term, toxic, covers everything. It can be a terrorist who is toxic, dangerous, bringing arms. It can be a, a priest who is sexually molesting you. I mean, you are children. It, it, can be, it can be a fundamentalist preacher. It can be a mother who doesn't allow his child to go free. It can be father with excessive authority. Anything goes. All this is covered by the same category, toxic subject. Because this is difficult to accept. That beneath all these appearances, stories, we are telling ourselves this toxic, this toxic, this, uh, toxic dimension. How do we fight? This is why I think also, incidentally, we are so obsessed with the topic of immigrants. Because in the Western Europe today, and you must know it, okay, now it's better, but not so much you as Albania Albanians. You know, for Italians, you were very toxic. Now I think it shifted from Albanians first to North Africans. Now, for some strange reasons, Romanians are the ultra-toxic in Italy. All the rapes are usually attributed. Don't ask me why. It's very mysterious, <laughs> and uh, the logic of it. So what I want to say is that Italy is, for me, watch it, the country of the future, the most progressive country in the world now. Why? Because it's where we are all unfortunately heading, I claim now. It's still a democracy, formally, but a democracy which is becoming openly more and more insubstantial. Look, now, after the last elections, even whatever remained of the center-left, Oliva, Olive Party, uh, uh, Prodi, Veltroni, uh, uh, it's falling apart, they resigned to it. Berlusconi is the boss, but what's so mysterious about Berlusconi? This should give you to think about what is changing in our societies, about how power functions. Are we aware that Berlusconi, I mean, he's stupid, but not so stupid that he doesn't know what he is doing, that he is, it's quite shocking. It's, did you notice, if you just follow the media, he's systematically undermining even the minimal dignity of being a president of the state. I mean, how he deals with his wife, you know, all this. It's, it's literally a pornographic reality show. That girl, his wife, he explains his life. And I think that Berlusconi is not the beginning. It started already in the 80s with... Uh, in Argentina, Carlos Menem and Ronald Reagan. Yes, although he kept some dignity, but Reagan was the first, first which played upon presenting himself as an idiot. I remember I read, uh, not read, listened with an interview with him when a journalist asked him a difficult question and Ronald Reagan's answer was, why are you asking me this you know that I'm too stupid to answer. You know, like mocking his own stupidity and so on. I think that, but this is maybe too much history for you and for us, I mean, not, that Richard Nixon was the last authentic, tragic president. He, he fell, he was corrupted, but there is something almost authentically tragic in his corruption. With Reagan, we are entering the different register. So, again... Why is this important? Because de facto, let's be clear here, de facto, uh, it is still formally a democracy. Italy, 
but it's becoming totally uh, non-substantial. You have an obscene head of state, and all people talk about him, next love affair, what will his wife do. He even incidentally mocks, totally without dignity, the love affairs of his wife. You know who is Massimo Cacciari, the philosopher who is the mayor or boss of Venezia, of Venice? The rumor is that, uh, how is she called, Veronica or what? Uh, Berlusconi's wife and Cacciari had an affair. And at, at one reception, I couldn't believe it when I was in Italy, I saw it on TV, uh, 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 a foreign young diplomat was presented to Berlusconi, and who was a young, nice guy. And in front of cameras, Berlusconi told him, oh, I must present you to my wife so that I get rid of Cacciari, you know, you are more... It, it, but this shouldn't deceive you. This shouldn't deceive you, you know. It's like that doctor in the army, you know. He makes jokes, haha, masturbate, but the power remains there. And if anything, the power is stronger. The, this is typically postmodern. The power which masks itself, now it's no longer a joke, it's a little bit more serious. Uh, you know, this is typically postmodern power. It's masked at permissivity, the right to choice, and so on, but beneath it, it's an even stronger injunction. Like another story I use in my book, which is not translated here, uh, uh, it's my favorite example of today how authority functions. Let's say maybe you even know, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, let's say it's Saturday or Sunday afternoon, you are a small boy or girl, and you have to visit your grandmother. You hate it, it's boring, and so on. Okay, let's say you have an old-type patriarchal father. What will he tell you? He will tell you, listen, I don't, to you, small boy or girl, listen, I don't care how you feel, behave properly, it's your duty to go to the grandmother. That's okay, I claim. It's a little bit of repression, but you retain all your freedom to secretly rebel against it or whatever. Now let's take the postmodern permissive, non-authoritarian father. What would he tell you? He would tell you something like, you know how much your grandmother loves you, but nonetheless, I want you to visit her only if you really want to. Now, you got it that beneath the surface of free choice, there is an order which is much stronger. The order is not only you must visit her, but you must like to visit her. <laughs> you see, this is how authority functions. Okay, now let's go a step further. How even, don't be nervous. <laughs> I am, I am, my God, are you, I, my, I'm supposed to be here, I warn you, racist cliche in crazy Albanian part where you are lazy, nobody works, and I come from almost Protestant Slovenia, and you act now as a stupid Slovene. Be, be, be member of your nation. <laughs> okay, so let's go on. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the problem of... Okay, no, okay, no, listen, there must be a point where to stop. No, so, no, no, no sorry? Five more minutes, okay. If, ten, yeah. yeah. Uh, let me conclude. Nonetheless, uh, now I will jump nonetheless a little bit to what was the title of this talk. No? Uh, you know what is the link with economy here, nonetheless? Okay, my thesis is a very simple one. What, the ti what is the title? Like what happened in the first century? Two things happened. A, September 11th, at the beginning of the first decade, B, the ongoing financial crisis. And my idea is these are two twice the same 
thing repeated itself, the death of the liberal Fukuyama utopia. First, the Fukuyama utopia died with September 11th in the sense that it's obvious that the Western liberal democracy is not the formula for the entire world. Then, in the ongoing financial crisis, the properly economic aspect of liberal capitalism was dealt a blow. It is clear today that the true utopia were not communism, social democracy, which died. The true utopia were the 90s the happy era of this Clinton prosperity, and I like Clinton, I agree with your, I will explain at the end why, the poster you have here of, <laughs> of Clinton, but that's another story. What I'm saying is that, uh, 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 why is this moment dangerous, the moment in which we are today? And I will come back to Berlusconi. It is because... Uh, no, I'm not naive. I'm not saying, oh, this crisis is the beginning of the end of capitalism. We just have to organize the left. No, if you ask me at this level, I'm even a little bit of a pessimist. I think that the, you know Naomi Klein's theory of the shock therapy, how capitalism uses, no matter how strong, shocks to get a new boost. So I think this will be just perfectly integrated as another shock therapy for capitalism. It is already done in the United States where, okay, on the one hand I know all the investments uh, of Obama helping economy, but those are right, the guys who claim, no, no, this has nothing to do with Obama socialist or what. Uh, it's rather that, uh, for example, how the big thing, one of the big things going on now explicitly in the United States is how to use this crisis to break the last, the last still relatively powerful trade unions, syndicates, trade unions, no? It's explicitly, that's the whole point about the debate, should they allow the great three automakers, no? General Motors, Chrysler, Ford to fall. The idea is, let's use this to get rid of the trade unions, because the auto, car, trade union is one of the last strong. But I want to uh, focus on another thing here. Now you will say, okay, if everything will be okay, just used for capitalism, why then aren't we just glad and accepted? If there will be no revolution, in other words, I'm now asking myself the big question that maybe some of you would like to ask me. Like, am I totally stupid or what? Like, why don't I simply, honestly accept Capitalism with all its problems is still, liberal capitalism, liberal democratic capitalism, is still the best game in town, how should I put it, no? In other words, in the same way that when I was young we were dreaming, some of them, I wasn't so stupid, about socialism with a human face, why don't we just fight for global capitalism with a stupid, uh, sorry, with a human face? <laughs> you know, like, a little bit bad, okay, now I come to the problem. Because I think that, and with this I will conclude, now really five minutes, there was one good argument for capitalism, let's admit it, till now. That uh, whenever, wherever there was, and from time to time, capitalism did need a dictatorship, no? To survive, like Chile, South Korea. But after 10, 20 years, when things developed, it always generated a strong push towards democracy. So it was true that sooner or later it did bring democracy. I claim this game is over. How? Where do I see it? 
First, uh, first there is the mega, I cannot emphasize so much, historical importance of what goes on in China today. My good friend, yes, my good friend, although we hate each other theor uh, philosophically, but personally we go along quite well, uh, uh, Peter Sloterdijk, the German. You know, when we meet, he tells me, I know, when you get over, I go to Gulag, but when I get to power, I will shoot you, and then we say, but till that moment we can be friends, what's the problem, no? So he told me when I met him, typically at an airport waiting for a flight, a very interesting thought. He told me that he's thinking a lot about a very naive question. Can we imagine to, to which person from our time will they be raising monuments, statues, 100 years from now, in future? And his answer was Li Kuan Yu. You know who he was. I think he's now over the long-time president of Singapore. Li Kuan Yu invented and perfectly practiced the first, what poetically we call capitalism with Asian values. Less poetically, it means authoritarian capitalism. Capital and uh, do you know that Deng Xiaoping, just when he was starting his reforms, he visited Singapore, and uh, said, I remember as a child, my God, I, I wasn't even a child. <laughs> so, uh, he said uh, to the cameras, this Singapore is the model all of China should follow. And that's what's going on. As you probably know, China is basically today an ideal capitalist country. It's a country where if you don't mess with politics, it's probably the most free, more or less, for capitalists, like in the sense of the party takes over of, keeps the workers in check, you know. And it's literally true. You know what is one of the most tragic things? I have some friends in China, and they told me that in the latest reprint of their, you know, the official guide, like history of the Chinese Communist Party for the country, printed every year in millions of copies, they censored their own past now. The previous editions had one chapter about how the Communist Party in the 1920s and 30s organized in Shanghai in big industrial centers, working class workers to strike. They censored them because they are so much afraid that somebody will apply this today. You know, workers organized in China and so on. So they, okay, but what now I'm coming to it. Reading many books, I was in China, debating with them and so on. Unfortunately, I don't believe liberals who claim, oh, give them another 10 years, there will be a democratic explosion. I think genuinely that something is emerging in China and some other countries uh, with so-called capitalism with Asian values, which is a, a capitalism maybe even more dynamic productive than our Western capitalism, but which no longer needs democracy. Functions even. This is fatal. It's over. This, how I put it, natural alliance between liberal democracy and capitalism. And I think, and as a right-winger, to be quite clear, Peter Sloterdijk is an enlightened conservative. He says, told me he's worried like hell here. He sees phenomena like Berlusconi as 
European version of it, because vaguely the same thing is happening in Russia, and again, no wonder Putin and Berlusconi are great pals, friends, no? You know, this kind of a, of course it's not the same as in China, Berlusconi plays a clown, but what is important is that, on the one hand you have the political spectacle, cheap populism jokes, but the, what should have been the true politics, social politics economy, is simply totally depoliticized, I mean, no, Berlusconi is not just uh, 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 saying publicly how he's seducing young girls and, uh, and, and, and the problems with his wife. He's all the time passing very tough laws and so on, but somehow people don't take care, don't even notice it. It's a total depolitization of economy, where economy is starting to function in a, how should I put it, implicitly authoritarian way. And I think... This expresses, I cannot go enough, uh, deep, don't have enough time because you brutally repress me into, into uh, why, what is happening in today's capitalism that uh, it, contrary to what some of the poets like Negri think, you know, Tony Negri, that today's capitalism is dynamic, uh, auto-poetic, the state is out. No, it needs more than ever a strong state. Let's make it clear. The state is getting stronger and stronger. And, uh, and the state which, I think, in order to regulate properly the way capitalism is functioning today, will less and less be able to do it in an in a even formally democratic way. We got the first taste of it even in the United States. I wonder if you noticed something. When Bush announced the cri confronted the crisis in October, address the American people. Did you notice, many commentators did how, he used almost the same terms, almost, as he used when he reacted to September 11th. Our way of life is in danger, emergency state, all to, and then you had something which shocked me. You remember how the uh, uh, Bush presented this first so-called bailout money, 700 billions of dollars plan. Today, we are used to higher sums. You don't even pick them up if you see them down, no? But the important thing is that, you remember, there was the first vote, the Congress voted against it, two-thirds of the members. Then it was something strange that happened. All the political elite, irrespective of color, Bush, McCain, Obama, Democrats, came together and put the Congress under an incredible pressure. The notice was basically, listen, fuck off. Now is no time for democracy. We need these measures. Stop it. And basically, they de facto introduced an economic state of emergency. Now, don't, uh, don't uh, misunderstood me. I would have done the same. I'm not playing this boring leftist game, ooh, fascism in America or whatever. No, it was the economic necessity. It's one of the signs of how I claim uh, uh, today's capitalism is less and less able to act in a... Is, uh, to, it's less and less able to function within a democratic state, so the way it is doing is that simply, of course, we will be... I'm not saying that there will be an emergency state in the sense of, you know, like, like in Poland, Jaruzelski, one morning we will awaken a state of emergency. Although, incidentally, it's... Uh, fuck off, let's go. 
This, no, I, with you, with the public, not bother me. <laughs> Although it's interesting to know, this is again where Italy is future. Do you know that in Italy is formally from September or October of 2008 in a state of emergency? Formally. With very precise uh, point that this enables the government to use military in the countries. And they are doing it. First against the immigrants in the south, then against mafia in Napoli. Now they have serious plans, it's not a joke, to deploy uh, soldiers in big city parks to prevent women being raped and so on. Now you will tell me, but I'm exaggerating, but people still live normally. Yeah, but that's how it will come, I think. It will not be this classical emergency state, you know, you awaken one morning, uh, police curfew. Life will go on. You will have all your stupid private pleasures. You can have sex with dogs, with cows, with whatever. It's your problem. And they will even say, we need emergency state precisely to safeguard all these freedoms of yours and so on and so on. And, okay, allow me three minutes now to con really conclude with what in capitalism which tendency I see. I agree, but not quite, with Negri and some other Italian economists who claim that, who try to draw consequences from what is called the so-called rise of immaterial labor. You know that when Marx spoke about it in his Grundrisse manuscripts, he introduced the term general intellect, which means the collective practical knowledge which is today much more important than work time. Like, one has to admit this, that today the source of capitalist wealth is no, no longer predominantly classical workers' exploitation. This is nothing anti-Marxist. Marx says this in Grundrisse, where he says that, that once, the, once the labor, once the... In, in what Marx calls in general intellect, this collective knowledge, becomes the main factor in wealth. Simply labor measured by time and so on becomes meaningless. As the but Marx draw a totally wrong conclusion, that this will mean the end of capitalism. It will simply collapse, because exploitation will no longer work. What Marx didn't see is the possibility for theoretical reasons that can be explained, I don't have time now, of course, that, uh, that uh, capitalism succeeded in something else, in reprivatizing this general intellect itself. This was the possibility for which Marx was totally blind. What do I mean by this? Take an example like Bill Gates. How did he become as rich as he is? You cannot say he is exploiting his workers. No, he's even paying them relatively well. You also cannot play the game of uh, he's getting extra profit from others. No, I think the only explanation is the one offered by some good economists which claim for Marx the development of capitalism was from rent, you know rent, like you pay rent for, to profit. Now we are moving back from profit to rent. What Bill Gates does is this. Why do you have to pay 100, 200 Euros, I don't know how much, when you, if you do it legally, haha, when, you, when, you, when you download a, a new micro, uh, Windows, Word, whatever. It's not profit. You know, this price is basically totally independent of the production costs. 
The way Bill Gates functions, he doesn't say, okay, this costed me so much, let's put a high profit and then. It's rent. De facto, Windows functions as part of our general intellect. It's the very symbolic space where we come and so Bill Gates pri privatized part of our common space and so in order to dwell in common, to communicate and so on, we have to pay him rent. And I think this logic of rent is exploding more and more. And the problem with rent is that it's not as natural as it was. The moment you deal with immaterial property, with intellectual property, knowledge, and so on, it's not as clear. Like, if I produce a watch and sell it, it's clear. I sell this, the price is de uh, determined more or less on the market. But with so-called immaterial property, intellectual property, sorry. The problem is even how to define what can be privatized or not. The state has to intervene there already. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, Bill Gates cannot say, this is mine. I can say with production, this is mine, if I produced it somehow. But with intellectual property, it gets much more complex. You know all the problems when some companies already tried to privatize some genetic structures, some genes and so on, and then the state says no. So you need an incredibly strong state to set the parameters, to define this can be privatized, which is usually reduced to, but it's not only today, you know, even in popular culture, iPod and so on, all the problem of uh, popular, sorry, of copyright and so on and so on. The stronger and stronger state is needed here, I think, again, it cannot function in a in the long term, in a, in a democratic way. This, and now if you allow me really one minute to come back to Clinton, this is why I'm still a communist. I'm the first to admit that 20th century communism was a nightmare. My only very critical uh, reproach to anti-communists, and this may surprise you, is that they, they were not strong enough in seeing what a terrifying experience communism was. What do I mean by this? To okay, the last story, admit it. Did you see that big German film which got the Oscar, I think, uh, uh, Leben, Lives of Others? My problem with that film is that it's way too soft. Why? This is typically how liberals who think they are anti-communist don't get it. What was the communist tragedy? You know basically the story. A corrupted minister wants to fuck this famous writer's wife and to make the wife more accessible, he orders secret police to get the writer under total observation. And the writer is the, presented as an East German celeb, celeb, celebrity, faithful to the party, but at the same time famous in the West, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, if, you are, if you know anything about how socialism functioned, you start to laugh here. Because, you know... Uh, what happened in this film could have happened even in the West. If you have a corrupted secret police guy who wants to fuck your wife, of course, let's say, sorry, I want to, you, okay, I tell secret police there is a suspicion that you have, I don't know, links with Milosevic police, I don't know what, no, let's watch you a little bit, no? Uh, but uh, where the film goes wrong is that in a country like East Germany, the writer like that would have been under total observation, even if there is no minister who wants to fuck your wife, my God. No. 
You got it. It's still in a typically liberal way. They think there must be an evil guy who wants something evil. But you know, in the, although I hate these parallels between religion and communism, but in this sense, they were similar. You know, Steve, Stephen Weinreich, the physicist, says something, and this doesn't cover all the religion. I wrote a lot about respect for Christian heritage and so on. But at least referring to religious fundamentalism, there is something nice in what Stephen Weinreich said. What did he say? He said that without religion, good people do good things, bad people did bad things, like usual. But that you need religion to make good people do bad things, you know, for that additional push. Uh, I'm saying it's the same in the horror of communism was not that bad people did bad things, but that it made people who thought they were good do bad things, thinking that they were doing good. You know, the tragedy was deeper. That's why, for example, you should read it, you learn a lot, Robert Conquest, the big chronicles of communist crimes, but the background... Theoretically, it's not strong enough. The story is always this one. Oh, what a bad guy Stalin was doing all this horrible... No, communism is not a problem of bad people doing bad things. It's an authentic tragedy of good people pursuing good starting to do bad things. So, what I'm saying is that no illusion here. I'm not... I mean, if there was a catastrophe, it was the 20th century communism. What I'm nonetheless saying is that we have a whole series of antagonisms today. One is this, toxic immigrants, new walls, you know, we were happy, you know, that if the metaphor of, of, of the end of communism is the walls are falling down. Now, as we all know, the walls are again going up all around, West Bank, European Union, sometimes metaphoric walls, often real walls. Mexico, United States, and so on and so on. The other problem, ecology, I think. I cannot now go into it, but I think ecology is in the long term a problem which you cannot solve it with market measures. You can do a lot of good things with market, like include the price, sorry, ecological damage as an externality, but simply the stakes are too high. Because market, in order to work, needs time. You know what I mean? Like, you try this, you try that, the best wins, if. I'm not so sure. But the problem is that with Chernobyl, you, can, you cannot say one Chernobyl, the other Chernobyl. Okay, before we find a solution through market, we will be all that. Uh, then uh, intellectual property, as I already said. Then even biogenetics, I think. You know, Fukuyama, of all people, Fukuyama, who was this big utopian, the end of history, now thinks now renounces his thesis. He thinks that, that uh, biogenetics is a strong argument enough. He sees very clearly that biogenetics brought us something which is a totally new situation where all the coordinates are mixed. And I agree, let me conclude with the last, not even story detail. I read two weeks ago that in England they already constructed a first wheelchair for crippled people, which is run... Uh, totally by thoughts. Yeah, you know what they did? They, your, you have some kind of a cap with, I don't know what, uh, brain detectors on your head, and it's still very primitive, like it cannot really read your mind, but it can do something primitive, it can be done. It can read if you think strongly about forward, backward, left, right. It somehow detects, so you know, you sit and you just think strongly, forward your wheelchair moves forward. I mean, uh, 
Now you'll say, what's so horrible about this? It is, because in a way, the very fundamental, what is our being human? Our being human is experiences, I have my free thought. I'm here, you know, my thought is here, reality is out. Now, you will say, but this is wonderful, we are becoming like God. Like, you know, I think my thinking immediately has effects on reality. No, the problem is to put it in vulgar pornographic terms that what goes out also goes in, no? If it goes in this direction, it also goes in the opposite direction. For example, I was told, this is a great hashtag debate in the United States now, that militaries are doing already like crazy this kind of uh, experiments, no? That is to say, uh, they already isolated the waves which your brain radiates when you are in a total panic. And they already know how to produce them artificially, and then they bombard you and you are automatically in panic. They already have a simple machine, it can be carried in a suitcase, I was told, where it covers about three, four football fields. I press a button, all people are there in panic. I mean, I, no, no, I'm not here apocalyptic. It's not the end of the world. I'm just saying things are happening which affect deeply the most elementary sense of what does it mean to be human. You know, our understanding of being human till now is I have a, this basic distance between inside-outside. I fantasize my free thoughts, reality is out. It's getting undermined. And here, I didn't forget really to conclude, Clinton was right. Clinton wrote along these lines a wonderful text without any irony a couple of months ago, I think again, October, November, where there was United Nations Food Day. He openly admitted, we blew it up. That's the title of the text. With, you know how United States and developed countries were putting immense pressure on the third world to open their agriculture to the market and so on and so on. Clinton says this. The result is hunger now. Why? Because how did it work? Many countries like Indonesia and so on followed it. Haiti, crucial case. What did this mean? The best land was privatized, bought by foreign companies who used it to export, not even food, many industrial plants. Local people, it wasn't immediately a catastrophe for them. They work there, they get paid. But once you have a crisis, like now, there are two things. First, all of a sudden, this export industrial agricultural products plants, you cannot sell it, lower demand, and point two, because of global warming, because of new economic power of China and so on, as we all know, the price of food went double, triple. And because the countries cannot sustain themselves, you have hunger. Hunger is a new phenomenon. An incredible amount of people are already in hunger. Now I'm repeating Clinton, and I know from my friends in Haiti, do you know, and this is for me the tragic, every, all people think, oh, now things are moving, China, economy, yeah, 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 but China and Haiti and many countries where, do you know that in Haiti, I saw a TV report, they are now selling on the market, how do you call it, water mixed with earth, mud, many trains, mud cakes, literally, cakes made of mud. Because they discover they have some minimal uh, minerals and they somehow fill your stomach. And, so what I'm, and then Clinton finishes in a very nice way. He said, the lesson is, food is too important to be simply left to the market. But now I just would push 
our friend Clinton, I saw the poster of that big image, a little bit further. Let's follow Clinton to the end. Food, yes. Then wouldn't you agree that education also? It's not simply. It cannot be left to the market. Wouldn't you agree that arms industry couldn't be left to the market? Wouldn't you agree that, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that health cannot be simply left to the market? Because then rich people will live and so on. So, and so on, and so on. At the end, maybe some Chinese plastic toy, toys can be left to the market, no? And communism will be back, believe me. Thank you very much.